Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Tikre Gebreyesus and Elizabeth Alexander were born two months apart in 1962. In fact, I think we're probably about halfway between their birthdays today. Uh, he in Eritrea, she in Harlem. They didn't meet until 1996. He was an artist and a chef in New Haven. Uh, he owned a restaurant there, um, and she was a poet and a professor. She was visiting New, ha- New Haven to write a play she'd been teaching at the University of Chicago, where she'd also met a senior lecturer named Barack Obama. Uh, she married Fikre, uh, and she delivered Barack Obama's 2009 inaugural poem, Praise Song for the Day. In 2012, a few days after her husband's 50th birthday party, he died abruptly. Her new book, The Light of the World, tells that story and and many other stories besides. Uh, She's joining us today from the NPR studios in New York. Um, Welcome to our show, first of all. I'm glad to be here, Colin. Thank you. Uh, It's been a a wonderful experience reading the book, meeting you, meeting your husband, meeting uh, the people around you. Uh, I feel as though I wish I'd been going down to New Haven and going eating at that restaurant and uh, getting a little bit more of that world uh, when it was there. Uh, but it, it's it's good, at least in, in the book, to have a sense of what it was like. Um, let's begin by having you tell a little bit uh, of the story. You, as they say, you met cute uh, and a little <laughs> bit and a little bit mystical. Actually, before you meet cute. Um, it was foretold kind of almost chillingly by is it Reggie, Reggie, the Brooklyn psychic? It is Reggie the Brooklyn Psychic, an amazingly seeing person. I'd never been to a psychic before, and I went to see him, and in very, very clear terms, he pictured uh, this extraordinary man um, coming into my life. No, no, I said, no, no, it's not time for that. This isn't going to happen. I didn't know that I even fully believed what he was saying, and he said, well, just get ready. And uh, very shortly thereafter, uh, this extraordinary person dropped into my life, and we immediately, after a week, decided to get married. Well, there was so, well, we'll come to that. But we're selling Reggie. <laughs> okay. We're selling Reggie a little short. I mean, Reggie nailed a whole bunch of specifics too, as I recall. He did. He said. He said, "I see a painter, and I see his paintings. They look like the skies of the Southwest." Fikre was from Eritrea, and when we went to the southwest, he talked about the color of the skies and the mountains and how he'd never seen anywhere that so reminded him of home in the colors he tried to capture in his paintings. This was some years after. He said he's from some place that people don't know a lot about, a small place that people haven't heard of, an interesting place. And that, of course, uh, it, it defines Eritrea very well, an extraordinary, fierce place uh, that is not as known uh, as other as some other African countries, um, he predicted a conversation that would feel as though it had always uh, been going on, and indeed, uh, we just started talking and uh, and didn't stop. It, and this starts while you're waiting to meet a friend in a cafe. Since we're on the air in Connecticut, I'm going to guess it's Claire's Cornucopia. 
Well, no. Um, so let's make it all Connecticut. Okay. The restaurant was the the late great Cafe Adulis, which oh. people will oh, remember. Okay. His and cafe. the cafe, his well, but the, at the time he and his brothers owned a cafe across the street called Taft Cafe. Okay, it's now I believe a hairdresser, but a beautiful mosaic that Fikre laid in the floor is still there. So it was at Taft Cafe where I was to meet a very reliable friend who mysteriously didn't appear, and I looked up and here was this person who said very shyly. I saw your play. Could we talk about it? And my family and friends laugh at that because, you know, moi, my work, <laughs> you'd like to talk about me and what I do. Um, but it was uh, the beginning of an extraordinary conversation. And I knew in that moment, in the book, I describe it as a visceral torque, that it was not butterflies, that it was not uh, mere excitement at seeing a cute guy. Um, I really did feel like something internal shifted on its axis. Um, the perhaps overused term is soulmate, but it, everything that you describe is, I think, what we project under the term soulmate. Um, you um, and from then on, there isn't really, from from what I can read anyway, um, a backward step. It's all kind of a forward prog- progression. Uh, first of all, a conversation that essentially doesn't end for days and days and days, and then a life together uh, that that just stays and stays. Yes, and and I think of of that expression when the teacher is ready, the student will appear, or when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I think that that readiness and timing is much of uh, what the way by which we identify our soulmates. We were both ready to join uh, forces and souls and hearts. We were ready to have children. We were ready to make something together. As artists, we were both ready to move forward in the way that our support for each other allowed. Um, So I think that that we were lucky um, that we were both at the same place when we when we met. Well, speaking of being lucky, now it's it's an odd thing to be reading a book about a tragedy about heartbreak and envying the people. But I, I found myself envying the life that you describe, and I know I'm not the only one. Uh, It's an enviable life. Um, Food, music, love, children, endless amounts of company, all with this very exotic, multi-talented man who adored you. Uh, A house guest calls your life like a foreign film. Um, Was it really that good, or, or, or does it look that good in the rearview mirror? Well, don't envy. And envy, yeah. I think, uh, I hope that this is seriously the way that I think about romantic love. I think that it starts at the dyad and it radiates out. Love is not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to only exist between two. And that was one thing that we both believed very firmly. So our love radiated out, of course, to our children, of course, to our extended family and to our friends. But in our commitment to our art, in our commitment to the ways we tried to be be helpful. My work as a teacher, his work as a a teacher in so many different ways, um, that, you know, love is meant to grow larger um, and it's not meant to be hoarded. I think also what we shared was a belief that you can make the quotidian details of your life beautiful. You can take the time to make a beautiful meal and feed the people you love and nourish the people you love. You can take the time to put on music. You can take the time to uh, appreciate um, the beautiful things that are are there for us in every day. And so I, I think that that's uh, a choice that that I always strive to make more, and that I think that we can all um, make more. 
It does sound too as though Fikre. Well, you describe him at one point uh, as a as a painter who didn't paint what he saw, but but he painted what was in his mind, and then sometimes he went looking for things uh, that corresponded to to the images in his mind. Um, hence, you wind up with tulips that are of a color that probably I've never seen a tulip. Uh, you yes. know, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, if you want to elaborate well, that, on that, no, that well, that was um, just such an interesting um, revelation for me to realize um, that. What he what he saw was not the same as what was right in front of him, and yet when you look at his paintings and the magic in his paintings and the colors and the beauty, even if they don't exist in nature, uh, they they exist somewhere, and you believe them. The cover of the book, for example, is one of his paintings that I love very much: "Solitary Boat in Red and Blue." And when you look at it, um, you see that there are these kind of magical flowers or stars raining down on this solitary boat. And you you believe them before you realize where could those flowers be coming from and stars don't fall like that. Um, And that was part of his painterly, painterly gift. Well, let's get to the very hard part. Um, the very hard part is is a day, as I said, uh, not many days after his 50th birthday party when uh, he goes down to use the treadmill. And, and you and your sons ultimately find him lying uh, on the floor. What had happened? He had had a massive uh, cardiac arrest, not a heart attack, cardiac arrest. Um, And it turned out that his arteries had been severely blocked and he'd been walking around with it and didn't even know. And in fact, was living feeling like, except for, you know, the day or two beforehand, a fully healthy person, someone who did yoga and ate yogurt and uh, blueberries and, and, and was on the treadmill um, and had had stress tests. So um, the shock of it, you know, loss is one thing, but the absolute shock um, was uh, something that was, was very hard to reconcile. Um, at what point did you decide that you were going to write something like this? I mean, obviously, the period after his death, you describe as a period of almost kind of literary numbness. Not only were you not writing, you weren't even reading. Um, at what point did you feel as though there was something to write? It was probably a few months after, and I didn't think that I was writing a book, a memoir, a thing. I just knew that I was putting pen to paper and writing snippets, fragments, little bits of writing that made me feel like I knew where my feet were on the earth, that literally grounded me in the moment and then later grounded me in wanting to capture and fix and remember everything. I think that some part of me must have thought that if I didn't fix it all, that I would forget it all, that it would slip away just as he slipped away so suddenly and unexpectedly. And um, even then, I didn't think that these were meant to add up to anything. But um, my extraordinary editor, Gretchen Young, uh, called me and uh, said, I I think if it's not an intrusion, I just want to say that I think you could write something powerful about what you've been through. And uh, that's when the process of writing the book began. As I was reading it, um, there are there are these marked shifts, you know, for the reader, emotional shifts for the reader. By the way, I should just sort of, as we say, reset and say well, we're talking to Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, playwright, essayist, uh, author most recently of The Light of the World, uh, a memoir about her life with her husband and his death and her life after his death. Um, and so for me, there's a moment on page 98 where uh, he's died and, and you discover that if you go back to bed after your uh, sons have left to sc- for school, you you dream him and you 
dream him in a way that's so vivid that it really seems as though you're finding him there somewhere uh, on the on that kind of cusp between wakefulness and, and sleep. And, and, and it's so powerful that you think, maybe I'll do this every day when my sons go to school. I'll just go back to sleep so that I can dream him. And for me, I don't even know what question I'm asking right now, but for me, that's the moment at which the, lo- the, the loss and the yearning, the magnitude of loss and, and the, the uh, just a powerful yearning is conveyed to me, like how much you want to find this guy again. Well, that's a that's a, a very um, careful read um, because um, I didn't experience that as the point, but I think that our subconscious is so powerful. And of course, it acts itself out in dreams. And the force with which it was interesting to me first that my subconscious suppressed those visitations, if you will, because there was too much grief to wake from a dream and realize that it was just a dream because it had seemed so real. Um, those were very, very sorrowful moments. Um, and I think that it, it is magical thinking, you know, when you uh, think, well, they, maybe they're coming back. Where are they? Where are they? You feel presence. You know that the person is still with you in some kind of way, but you just can't find them. And yet uh, in your sobriety know that uh, they're not they're not coming back. So that was uh, a period to just keep slogging through. And there's a, a moment in that description where you say that what wakes you is your keening at that moment. And and it's one of the many times when, as a reader, I feel pulled in very, very close. You know, when you're a poet, you, well, I mean, you're always a poet, but when you're writing poetry, mm-hmm. um, there's something elliptical about poetry, right? There are things that are sort of hinted at but not fully conveyed. There are things uh, that uh, I, I can, I just, I sort of while reading this book, I went back and read uh, one of Tess Gallagher's poems about uh, mm-hmm. the death of her husband. And I was thinking, well, I, I know less reading that. I mean, there may be very powerful images there, but I, I don't really feel particularly led into that world all the way. But in this memoir, you are re- – I feel very, very close in at times, almost so close to you and your husband and your children that it's almost – I feel almost a little uncomfortably voyeuristic. Um, did you – how did you deal with this whole question of sharing, how much to share, how deeply to share? Well, you've said a lot of interesting things. So first what I want to talk about is is writing uh, from a place of poetry but writing a memoir. Mm-hmm. I wrote in the way that I know how, which is to start with words, to start with sounds, and to build out from there, always attending to the shape and the music. But you're absolutely right. The ellipticalness of poetry, um, though you know poems deal with that in different ways depending on how they're made, was something that I really wanted to eschew. I felt that I had to be absolutely lucid with my readers. I didn't want them not to understand who we were or what was happening. I wanted them to be fully grounded in the material details of the moment, as I was also trying to ground myself, as I said earlier, really, where are my feet on this earth? You know, the grounding was a word that kept um, coming back to me. The first part of your question was so interesting. I forgot the second part. <laughs> well, um, um, I, let me well, let me phrase it a different way. I should put my cards on the table and say I, I I've also written what they now refer to as a grief memoir. A little bit more than ten years ago, I wrote a book about yes. the about the death of my father, and and I felt pretty naked. You know, I mean, at, at t- uh, exposing. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. No, that yes. Um, um, I never am. I am private. 
And I never imagined that I would write a memoir. And the very ellipticalness you describe in poetry is um, something that I adore because it means that I, of course, write from things that I know and understand, but it feels like uh, a beautiful Baroque, not shield, but um, a made thing that is somehow in between my open heart and my readers. Um, I think, though, what I found already from the response to the book and from the excerpt of it that was published was that so many people have written me. And most of them actually aren't talking about the loss of a spouse. They're talking about other kinds of grief and loss and love. And maybe you found this as well with your book. You know, grief is our common denominator on this earth. That is just the truth. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it's 10 years from now. I hope it's not every day. But we will lose people that we love. And we, too, will pass from this earth. And so I think that trying to grapple with and and understand that and then think about what is living? What is life? What is the texture of life? And does it mean that the way we feel our grief, how does it connect to the way we loved somebody? Um, I think that these are, are very, very common common experiences, but the beauty is we experience them in such individual detail. And so just as I love hearing other people's stories, I'm finding that other people are wanting to share. And um, that's quite powerful. Yeah, and I, I feel that um, some of the casual details become kind of uh, a way of coping with some of the more profound details in your book. In other words, you know, there's just there's very, very powerful stuff that that I, I think either one of us would find difficult to say to another person in a conversation, but somehow or other you can get it down on paper. Uh, on the other hand, I just feel that one of the things that you do in the book is convey the sensory details of a daily life so that I feel like I'm eating food with you and listening to the music that you listen to. Um, I'm eating eating spaghetti with 100 onions and listening to Jimmy Scott Mm -hmm. sing Heaven. So... um, and I wanted to ask you about that. So one of the things that you've done in this book is that there are, there are actual recipes in this book. Now, you're not the yes. first person to do that. But uh, first of all, the recipes all look great. I'm pretty sure I'm going to make them all. They all just look that good. Uh, Fantastic. But, <laughs> but why did you decide to do that? Um, well, um, food was uh, a bo- or deep love of food. I mean, we all eat. But a deep love of food was a bond that um, Fikre and I shared and a belief that in food is so much more. Food is love. Food is culture. Food is art. At Cafe Adulis, the restaurant that he and his brothers ran in New Haven for 16 years, um, he really thought about his work as the chef there as um, being absolutely – that it went hand in hand with his work as a painter. Um, so that kind of, of of potential for beauty and pleasure uh, every single day, uh, and what I also find with preparing a beautiful meal is, is that, you know, so many chores in life, you know, writing, reading, thinking, preparing classes uh, aren't really finite, um, but preparing a meal and enjoying it is finite and thus profoundly soul-satisfying, I think. So including the recipes was a way, first of all, of just telling what happened, hopefully in vivid language. I actually like the language of food and cooking. And um, the recipes are not all just like in a cookbook. They're told in different ways. Some are narrative. Um, some are described as though I were telling you uh, how uh, he, he would make something. Uh, I list what he does and does not put in his uh, bolognese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it um, 
almost in a collaged fashion to be another kind of language that I could use in the book. I think also, you know, it's about the any book like this is about sort of the seasons of life and the memories that you have of certain holidays. And food is so tied to that. And, and then you get sort of the Eritrean customs uh, and, and the specific food that's tied to certain days. And I mean, before you and I went on the air for two seconds, we had a moment to do a mic check. And so I asked, asked you whether you'd had your shad yet, because that's actually another sort of sort of seasonal ritual, right? I mean, for, for I haven't had my shad yet either, and I'm kind of wondering whether the moment has passed. But it's, it's an example of something. It's though. Hmm? Yeah, I'm thinking. It's still cold. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's something that's, that we mark time with food. We do, and I think that also the cultural piece you mentioned is so important. Fikre came uh, from another place, and what does it mean in diaspora, especially when you're in diaspora because of a, a long uh, and and difficult war, to keep your traditions alive uh, and pass them on to the next generation with the things that you make to eat. The shad meal um, uh, that I make every spring, that my mother made for me every spring, um, was also so uh, cultural, not just in the culture of our family, but in the bacon part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bacon is certainly the, the most wonderful American condiment there is, I think. And therein is a cultural moment because Fikre grew up in a culture, uh, Highland uh, Christian Orthodox uh, Eritreans, who did not eat pork. So what does it mean to come together and say, this is what we do and this is what we do and let's taste of each other's lives. Mm. All right. Um, you're making my mouth water. All right. So <laughs> let's um, let's take a break. We're talking to Elizabeth Alexander. Uh, the book is The Light of the World. We'll be back after this. How I made it over Coming on over All these years You know my soul They play it once again They play it all night long Heaven is a place Where nothing ever That's Jimmy Scott uh, singing the David Byrne song. Um, one of the things about The Light of the World, this memoir by Elizabeth Alexander, is that you could uh, you could sort of do a wonderful kind of a mixtape to play with it because there's so many interesting uh, evocations of music uh, among the many kinds of sensory detail uh, in the book. So, uh, Elizabeth Alexander, we're back. Um, Maybe I'd I'd like to begin uh, in this segment by talking about a question that you bring up in the book. You say, what does it mean to grieve in the absence of religious culture? And and I think that's a struggle for a lot of people. I, I knew it was a struggle for me after the death of my father. And I found myself thinking, well, if you don't go to the practices, you don't get to put on the uniform for the games. Mm-hmm. So um, on the other hand, there's a lot of very – spiritual and very mystical stuff that's in this book. So 
maybe I, I'm just asking a very open-ended question, I guess, maybe about how did you wind up answering that question? How does one grieve in the absence of yes, religious culture? And, 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 and to the music, which is part of my answer, um, it's thank you for playing um, these songs, some of these songs that are in the book. Listening to them here in the studio is is filling me with feeling, and I'm realizing that I actually haven't listened to them since uh, he passed. I didn't listen to them. Uh, um, so thank you. That's very beautiful. Um, I, I, I don't. I think it's an ongoing uh, question. You know, organized religion is one thing, and some people grow up in it in a very strong way, and then find their own ways outside of it, um, and others don't. Uh, we were something of a combination. Uh, Fikre coming from a very strong religious background and making his own way. Um, my coming from a very loosely organized Episcopalian background. Um, and um, I think that life is full of mysteries. Uh, I think that we need to pay attention um, when uh, there are phenomena around us that, that, that show us there are we should probably always pay attention when um, there are these moments that seem significant. Um, and I think, and, and what I write in the book, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at, at some of it here. You want to know you have your village if you don't have uh, all of those rules and rituals. You want to know, you want someone to tell you what to do. You want someone to feed you and say you can eat this kind of food and you can't eat that kind of food. Because my experience of extreme grief is that you don't have the wherewithal to figure those things out. So, uh, you know, I talk in the book of, about feeling jealous uh, of people who have strong religious organization, even though that's not what I'm looking for. I'm just wanting someone to tell me how to keep moving. Uh, I was very moved, for example, by um, the Jewish tradition of, you know, after you've mourned in your home for a period of time, your neighbors come and walk you around the block. Um, so, so powerful. But I, I think that I've always thought that there are analogs for those formal religious practices um, in other parts of my life, and I try to strengthen those rituals. And that was part of what we did with our family life. I want to get even more specific than that, though, and and mm -hmm. talk about it, um, a, a duality in, in in the book. So, uh, one of the things that you are told a couple of times by medical professionals is, you know, they've looked at everything, and as far as I can tell, uh, Fikre uh, died instantly. He was dead by the time he hit the floor. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, I want to read. I'm not going to have you read this. I think that would be cruel, actually, or it'd be hard uh, for me to get through if I were you. But this is uh, from the book. You write, "When I held him in the basement, he was himself, Fikre." When I held him in the hospital, as they worked and cut off his clothes, he was himself. When they cleaned his body and brought his body for us to say goodbye, he had left his body, though it still belonged to us. His body was colder than it had been, though not ice cold, nor stiff and hard. His spirit had clearly left, as it had not left when we found him on the basement floor, and I knew that he could hear us. Now I know for sure the soul is an evanescent, evanescent thing, and the body is its temporary container, because I saw it. I saw the body with the soul in it, I saw the body with the soul leaving, and I saw the body with the soul gone. Now, this is a kind of meditation that has less to do with the social structures around us or, or any kind of codified religion, but is a, a very profound and powerful statement about how, how you feel uh, about uh, about mind and body and about the whole notion of a soul. Um, and, and it really flies in the face of what medicine was telling you, right? He was gone before he hit the floor. Well, you don't think so, do you? Mm, I don't because 
that's what happened to me. And, you know, maybe what medicine told me was correct. I mean, I do believe that, um, you know, the the electrical signals in the brain, uh, you know, stopped when they said uh, that uh, they did. But I, I felt that the soul was a different thing and that it then becomes a different thing again when we think about how people live on with us after they've died. What does it mean that you can hear your father's voice, that you can hear him saying things he said and things that maybe he didn't say, but you know he would say? Um, What does it mean that you feel the presence of someone you loved around you even after, after they have died? I think most people can have experienced something like that. So I will call it the soul and um, the ongoing life of it, you know, is something else. I mean, some of it is narrative. Some of it is the way that we keep the people we loved living on. Uh, Some of it is memory. I mean, you know, to be sort of look at it as a a psychologist might, Mm -hmm. you know, you remember things very vividly and they are inside of you and that's why you can hear the voice of a loved one. But um, the way that I experience it is um, that something that he is with me. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm confused or that I think he's alive or that I think, you know, he's speaking to me through a Ouija board. It's I, I don't believe any of that. But I do know that he's with me. I do know that what my children have of their father is indelible. And I do know that that is different from memory because actually memory uh, can and does fade. I agree. I, first of all, I, I, um, I well, let me ask you this. Do you feel at all as though, I mean, in this book, there there is, first of all, that, that passage that I just read, which knocked me out uh, when I read it and it just knocked me out again. Um, and, and there are these kind of wonderful imagistic things about harbingers. You know, there is a hawk that you see before his death. There's a fox that you see um, after your, I think it's your mother-in-law's death. And and there's this amazing story that your son tells about this elevator that he can show you how to go in and go and see his father. And he says, "You, you wouldn't be able to do this on your own. (laughs) <laughs> I'm about to cry telling the story. You wouldn't be able to do this on your own, but you know, maybe someday you can, but for now I'll show you. And yes. uh, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, boy, this half of this feels like Elizabeth the poet exploring imagery, but half of it feels and I think very legitimately like Elizabeth saying the world really maybe is meant to be read th- this way as much as it's meant to be read at, on a strictly mechanistic Newtonian basis. Well, let's talk about that hawk because it's a New Haven story. Um, it was I- extraordinary. There was a, a hawk that was circling and circling and circling and, and sort of haunting our backyard in the days leading up to Figre's passing. And uh, uh, we saw it. We watched it um, completely devour a squirrel. Uh, its entrails just, you know, hanging down as it... I'd never seen anything like it. It was rapacious. It was a surviving creature. It was, uh, you know, sort of nature's necessary violence. Um, It was frightening. It was a big creature, and you saw how quickly it made short work of that squirrel. Um, Something was happening that we 
needed to pay attention to. Uh, and I certainly never Im- imagined that it was a sign of something. Well, cut to a portion of the book appearing in The New Yorker. And one of my neighbors wrote to, who I don't know, wrote to someone who I do know. And this is an elderly woman. And she said, I remember that hawk. I remembered seeing that hawk for those exact weeks in that spring and knowing that something terrible was going to happen in our community. And I didn't know what it was. And now I do. And I'm glad that I know. Now, you know, what what, what to say? You know, I, I think that, that a lot of people um, uh, read the world like that. And what was interesting for me as as a writer is that I was just trying to pay attention. I was just trying to pay attention and just like, you know, just with the sharpest pencil I could write what I saw and felt and perceived. So it is also a kind of revelation to me uh, to see what it ended up revealing to to me. me. Yeah. Well, you know, what I would say is that I would say since maybe last August, the most absorbing question to me, and it just keeps coming back and finding me, even if, I, if I'm not looking for it, is the question of human consciousness. You know, that, that whole issue of, boy, we have biomechanistic explanations for everything except consciousness. Uh, and there really isn't one. You know, there, there really isn't one that explains how this three pounds of tissue in our head can do what it does. Uh, and I just saw on one of those uh, simulcasts, I saw... Uh, Tom Stoppard's new play, The Hard Problem, which is exactly mm-hmm. about this. And interestingly, he if if Stoppard ever comes down on a side, he appears to come down on the side of, well, there really just is a whole vast gulf of unexplainable stuff about consciousness. And the people mm-hmm. who are insisting on a purely biomechanical view of the world uh, and, and this idea that we just haven't amassed enough detail to explain what can be explained are probably wrong. Um, and I, I just wonder maybe, you know, inhabiting a university environment, do you ever feel as though you almost don't have permission to think some of the things that you think that, that or that to, to read the world that way, that there are so many people around rejecting superstition and insisting uh, on a scientific universe that, that it's not OK with them if you think what you think? Well, um, I know what you're talking about. I mean, one of the things um, that's been fortunate about my university experience at at, at Yale and at Chicago before that is that I always defined myself as both a scholar and a poet. Um, I I, I do both of those kinds of writing and thinking. Um, And so... uh, I just kept showing them this is how I – these are the ways um, that I see the world because I think that even as we amass academic knowledge, we uh, – the the largest uh, thing that we need to caution against is arrogance. And I think the more you know, you realize the more you don't know and the more that cannot be understood by any one system of belief or any one epistemology or any one method of uh, of thinking or any one academic discipline. Um, knowledge and consciousness is really beyond any of us, even the really, really, really smart ones. Um, and so um, I think, once again, this takes us back to um, mindfulness, you know, using, uh, of course, a word from Buddhist practice and from yoga practice and um, a word that I really like because to me, when you use it in kind of not a, a sort of groovy way, but rather like, what does that mean to be mindful? That's just about 
paying attention and not assuming that you know always what it adds up to and being open always to the question mark. Oh, we're talking to Elizabeth Alexander. The book is The Light of the World. Uh, it's a memoir. Um, we'll take a break right now uh, and then we'll come back. Staring up at the ceiling Spring can really hang you up the moon. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Lydia Brown. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Randy Weston. For articles, photos, and audio of this show, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the fine line between alternative medicine and quackery. And now, back to Colin. Uh, and we're talking about the book, The Light of the World, a memoir by Elizabeth Alexander. Um, I do, just quickly want to also say it's great to have Kion Wolf back. She's been away for a few days. Lydia Brown has stepped in for Betsy Kaplan, who's the person who really set up uh, this show, because Betsy's away, too. But all of my all of my pillars of strength will be back soon, uh, and uh, and I'm grateful to have who I do have here. So um, Elizabeth Alexander, I'm going to read um, to you from um, one of your colleagues' uh, memoirs about loss. This is from Mark Doty's book Heaven's Coast. Yes, he, I love that book. He says, "I think this is what is meant." when we speculate that death is what makes love possible. Not that things need to be able to die in order for us to love them, but that things need to die in order for us to know what they are. Could we really know anything that wasn't transient, not becoming more itself in the strange, unearthly light of dying? The button pushed, the stones shine, all mystery and beauty, implacable, fierce, austere. Um, One of the things that runs through your book is um, some meditation also about death, about what it means to you. Uh, and what it means, what the well, I guess maybe what it means as a as a refraction through which you see uh, your fifteen years uh, with with Fikre. Um and and I'll just ask you to react to react to the Doty quote. What what did you learn about the relationship between love and death uh, as you wrote this book? I learned. I knew that I wanted to. I needed to write the book. Um, as quickly as I could because I didn't want to get to a place where I was looking back with rose-colored glasses and where I uh, where the edges of the pain had softened. Um, I knew that it was, in a way, just as, you know, the poet Michael Harper says, what is death but birth with complexity? And I think that that way in which you, you are birthed uh, as you come through the aftermath of somebody's death. And you have to go through uh, all of that profound uh, everythingness in a way that, that I think um, leaves you ever changed and, and in a way that I think the fragility uh, that is always there, you know, you, you can't live in fear that everybody's going to drop off the face of the earth, but at the same time, I think that there is a a care with which um, 
I take every day and every relationship now, um, not that I was careless before, but it feels different um, now that I know that, that, that something can can leave so quickly. Um, I think also part of what Mark Doty is, is getting at that's so, so powerful um, is that as with anything that you miss – you know, and it could be something very mundane that you miss. You miss the taste of that chocolate chip cookie you had yesterday. If you're still thinking about it the next day, it tells you something about how much it mattered to you. Um, and so I think that that's one of death's functions, too. I um, always knew that I I, I loved him uh, uh, with all of my heart, um, but the heft and weight of that um, feels different on the other side of his passing. I think also one of the things you allude to a couple of times in the book is that there's there was sort of this um, um, pattern, not patterns, the wrong word, but there there's there was sort of a a model or a mode for a man like this, and that he would become an elder, and, and maybe in a very Eritrean way, that he would be this old man who would provi- preside uh, over a, a family and would occupy a certain place and 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 exercise a certain uh, kind of influence that's very maybe traditional and tribal, uh, one more recognizable probably to him and his family than to you, but one that you started to recognize. And to me, that's one of the um, peculiar and, and frustrating tensions in the book is that you must have really wanted to see that, to see that happen, to see the kind of old man you thought he was going to be. Well, yes. And that is um, something that I will never stop missing. Uh, and I can't long for it because I can't have it. But um, that sense that we actually both shared of the importance of elders, but he, uh, from a cultural perspective, had um, even more, as you say, to teach me about that. But we both had a keen understanding. We always respected older people, wanted to know what they had to say, and realized and believed that communities don't function without the ballast of elders at one end and the uh, uh, the bubbles of, of, of babies at the other end. I mean, that's, that's the spectrum. Um, and I say he was supposed to be an elder, but his days were not long. Now, he was also uh, a, a very, very old soul, as they say. So I feel very lucky, and so do his and our many, many nieces and nephews and the young people who were in our lives to whom uh, he and we were a source of, of support and center and elder wisdom. So we, we got a lot of it while he was living. Um, but uh, he had a perspective uh, and, and a wisdom that was both his and uh, ancient, and um, he was actually not afraid of death in a way that I went through my life until this happened, afraid of death. And I learned from him uh, that we, how to, how to live with it, if, if, if you know what I mean. And I, I, I feel profoundly sad still that um, he won't be my companion in those years. Yeah, you kind of but, stole uh, you, you stole my next question, which was I was going to say that you you talk in the book about how from childhood having had a, a um a fear of death that would wake you up in the middle of the night. Yes. Um and and he has this great line. He says dying is hard, right? It's hard to die. Yes. Um, yes. The implication being, well, I'll let you say what the implication is. Well, the implication being that um uh we we don't mostly um just disappear. 
that actually what happened to him was unusual, um, that most mornings we will wake up uh, until, of course, the morning we don't. But um, that um, and I think really most importantly, from someone who lived through so much, saw friends disappeared, had soldiers break into his house, walked out of his country as a refugee from someone who had seen all of that, that he was joyful and did not fear death. Um, that it just seemed to me, well, you know, I'll take some of that, however you develop it, that, um, that calm that he had about the circles of life, um, was, uh, something that, that, that benefited me infinitely. You can't live in fear, I think is, is, is what I learned from him and what I continue to teach our kids. You can't. Um, one thing that's not in the book uh, is um, very much Barack Obama. Obviously, that would have been a pivotal point uh, during your time together. Um, was that is that just sort of a separate book and a separate story? Did you make a decision just to not tell that story within the context of the story of your marriage? Oh yeah, no, no, that's a whole that's another story. But um, I tell you what. Um Fikre was my one and only uh, reader. When I wrote poems, I would we had a ritual. I would read them to him, uh, and then he would read them to me because it's always uh, useful. You can catch things when you hear a poem in someone else's voice. And then I'd lift my eyes and look at him, and he would give me thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would then sometimes um, <laughs> put his finger on the page. He would say you know, this is where the problem is. Not like this line, this phrase, this stanza, but just put his finger there like it's it's here. And he was always, always, always correct. Um, so, so too with the inaugural poem. And I remember writing 5,011 drafts of that poem. And we went through our ritual every single time. And like, oh, can the dude please just give me the thumbs up? <laughs> and how it felt sitting on the stairs in our home when finally I got the thumbs up. Um, but, you know, that that was an extraordinary day. Um, that's another story. But it's a story that is continuous with how great it was to support each other as artists. Um, and there's actually a very remarkable poem in the book that he wrote um, uh, that begins in a very alarming, disturbing kind of way and then is about the way I think being a father transforms him and shows him a very different kind of world. Um, uh, I won't wreck it for people other than that. Um, the... Um, uh, I want to be. I want to end by asking you kind of a beginning question, which is um, uh, how you chose the title. The title uh, derives a little bit from Derek Walcott, who I think is sort of was one of your mentors. Uh, also from from well, the, there's sort of a biblical version of it, but the one that you cite is from the from one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so um, there are three epigraphs, the Walcott, the Gospel According to Thomas, and Lucille Clifton mm-hmm. uh, from her poem, The Light That Came to Lucille Clifton. The light insists on itself in the world. And with the phrase, um, the light of the world, you know, Walcott says, oh, beauty, you are the light of the world. And so that exaltation for the one, uh, for the beloved, was something that I wanted in the title. Um, the Gospel According to Thomas is about what happens if the human Human light doesn't shine. What does it mean that if we're in the darkness that happens when we lose a person or when they don't shine their light? And that made me think about um, Fikre and the life we tried to make together as 
light that we try to shine uh, outward. Um, and finally, with the Clifton, the light insisting on itself in the world, um, that even when there is the soul and spirit darkness uh, that comes after such extreme loss, um, to believe um, that the light insists, as I do, as I have experienced, as I teach my children. That's not about saying sort of, you know, cheer up, buck up, wash your face and move on. Um, But that is rather about life force. And that when we are here, we are here. And we need to be fully here. Uh, I quote uh, someone else inside, um, a, a poet friend of mine, Melvin Dixon, who died of AIDS at 42. And he says, you know, what did you do? You lived, you lived. And the open lips begin to sing. And so I think that um, that that life and light, uh, you know, the play on those two words, um, but that uh, indelible force um, is um, ultimately what I was left with, knowing that we would suffer, but also knowing that we would survive. I think there's not going to be a more beautiful place to end than that. Uh, We've been talking to Elizabeth Alexander. The book is The Light of the World. Nothing we have said can possibly convey um, the power and the tone and the richness and the rhythm of this book. Um, and speaking of rhythm, we'll end with some Eritrean Oh, my music. goodness. <laughs> I, this is so beautiful. Thank you. All right. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure.